0: Take a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter thirteen. Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirty-two. And uh, if you're one that likes to prepare ahead, we're going to be in Psalm sixteen quite a bit today too. So if you want to put your worship guide there as a marker in Psalm sixteen as well. So we're in week three of Advent. Uh, And each week we've returned to Acts 13... ...and then Paul has sent us out to to several Old Testament uh, passages. Uh, If anything, I hope you realize that the gospel was not invented by Paul. Uh, He preaches Christ according to the scriptures. Okay, It's God working out His revealed plan to save the world. Creation, sin, sacrifice, exodus, law... Covenant, temple, promise, kingship, Adam, Israel, David, exile, all these Old Testament categories give a context for knowing God's Son rightly. And as we've paused in Acts 13 to study these questions, we've struck it rich, haven't we? With with Psalm 2 revealing Jesus as God's unstoppable King who inherits the nations and spreads His rule to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 55 reveals how God's manifold kindness in the Davidic covenant becomes ours through uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. What will God reveal from Paul's use of Psalm 16? That's his next quotation in Acts 13, but let's give it some context by by first reading from verse uh, 32. Hear the word of the Lord. He says... Therefore, he says also in another psalm, and this is Psalm 16... ...you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation... ...fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Father, I pray that you would bless our time together in the word, that you would open our hearts to receive ...your word in the joy of the Holy Spirit... ...that your word would come with power... ...and in the Spirit and with full conviction... ...and that we would be transformed by it. We pray that we would worship you... ...more wholeheartedly as we go out from this place... ...and pursue our joy in you... ...knowing that you have sent your Son. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So perhaps you have heard this slogan... God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. Christians mean well, depending on what's meant by happiness and the object of happiness. There may be some truth here. Someone may be rather miffed about the circumstances God dealt them. And someone else then uses that slogan to help them see the greater purpose of holiness. But the thing with slogans is that they're often inadequate and they're applied so badly. Moreover, what if I told you that Paul's use of Psalm 16 actually reveals no dichotomy between your holiness and your happiness, but that God sent his son to make us happy in his holiness. Advent is about God pursuing our joy in the holy by sending his son. And that's where we're going to end today, but it's going to take a few steps to get there. So let's go to Psalm 16. Some of you are most familiar with Psalm 16:11: "In your presence there's fullness of joy, at your right hands are pleasures, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." And that's gloriously true, but we shouldn't skip the steps it takes to uh, understand how such joys become ours. Psalm 16 first applied to David and then to Christ before it ever can apply to us. And that's the journey I want to pursue this morning. So let's take five steps together, beginning with this one. God faithfully blesses His loyal King in life and in death. God faithfully blesses His loyal King in life and in death. Psalm 16 is written by King David. It's a cry for God to preserve him, Uh, but as the prayer develops, we observe an important relationship. David interacts with God in terms of the covenant relationship God had made with him. Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Samuel 7 and other places like this, they, they lay out the nature of the king's relationship to God, or at least what the king's relationship to God should be. As Israel's representative, the king must devote himself to God's law wholeheartedly. And by devoting himself to God's law, he would then represent God's heavenly rule on earth among the people. And as the king was loyal, God would faithfully bless him. And because he represented the people, the people would therefore be blessed as well. Well, in Psalm 16, we see David's loyalty... ...followed by God's covenant faithfulness in life. And then we see another picture of David's loyalty... ...followed by God's covenant faithfulness in death. Uh, So look at verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 16... ...where we get the first portrait of of David's loyalty. Psalm 16... ...verse 1. Preserve me, O God... ...for in you I take refuge... David's loyalty can be seen in that he takes refuge in God alone. He does not take refuge in himself. He does not take refuge in other nations. And he does not take refuge in other gods. He takes refuge in the one true God, Yahweh, is his refuge. He also submits to God's authority. He says, you are my Lord, my Adonai, my sovereign master... He also looks to God as his treasure. I have no good apart from you. So compared to other things in the world, God alone is the good David needs most. And then we also see his loyalty in that he delights in the saints, the godly ones. He He makes friends with those who pursue the Lord. And and just as a parenthesis, my friends, it would be wise that you take note of that. That your relationship with the Lord will be manifested in the people you long and enjoy hanging out with. Are they godly people? Your love for the Lord will show itself in longing to be with godly people people. David not only delights in the saints, he refuses the idolatry of others. He's not even going to say their names on on his lips. In other words, and the idea here is that as as the king is not mentioning these, the people are not mentioning these, eventually these idols' names will pass out of existence altogether. We don't want them here. Because of this loyalty, David then rehearses God's covenant faithfulness to him in life. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Meaning God himself is David's sustenance. He adds, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And the imagery here comes from when Joshua, for example, is casting lots as he's portioning out the promised land. And here, God himself casts the lot in David's favor so that he's blessed ...with security in the land. David observes the borders of his kingdom. He looks around and he sees all that God has done for him is beautiful. And the psalm then gives us another picture of David's loyalty. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Again, David's loyalty appears in that he, he looks to God as his counselor... Even throughout his nights, the Lord's word is so filling David's heart that it instructs him. He's the example of what Israel's king was supposed to be in Deuteronomy 17. He exemplifies how the king should reflect God's rule on earth. It's no wonder why God says of David, I have found in David a man after my heart who will do all my will. Verse 8 says... I have set the Lord always before me. Now this stands in contrast with idolaters, you know, who are setting other things before their eyes and who are making other things their chief pursuit. God is David's chief pursuit. And he goes on in verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now normally the king stands at God's right hand. But here God commits himself to the king's right hand. God so stands at David's side in covenant faithfulness that David has absolute confidence of not being shaken. The question, though, is what is about to shake David? Why the cry to preserve him in the first place? Because David faces death. Death is attempting to rattle David. You know, there are a lot of things that people can escape in this world. There are a lot of problems and situations that you can escape by your own strength and willpower. But you cannot escape death. Since Adam rebelled, death spread to all people because all sinned. Death is knocking on David's door. And so what does he do? What is the pattern we see here in Psalm 16? David is rehearsing God's faithfulness to him in life. And by rehearsing God's faithfulness to him in life, it gives him confidence that God will be faithful to him in death too. Look at the way he puts it in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, some will say David is simply praying God protects him from death. He needs to keep reigning as king. So protect me from premature death. Some people read it that way. Others have said, no, no, no. This is one of those few places in the Old Testament that reveals resurrection hope. David expects to die and be buried in this case. He's expressing hope beyond death. The specifics of how or when, he doesn't know fully, but he's confident They will, God will be faithful to him in and beyond death. That's the way I take his words. And and there are several reasons why. A couple have to do with the Davidic covenant itself that David knows and the New Testament's use of Psalm 16. We'll get to that in just a minute. But another reason is just the, the general tone of verses 10 to 11. David basically reveals three things. One, death will not get the last word on him. God won't forsake him in Sheol. His body might lie in the grave, but somehow God is going to rescue him. If God has bound himself to you in covenant, he's not going to forsake you even in death. This is the idea here. Uh, Two, God won't let his Holy One see corruption. Now there's a question about who this Holy One is. Is it David himself? He refers to himself in other Psalms this way. Is it the Holy One? Is it someone greater than David? Perhaps the Messiah? Is it in some way both perhaps? David pointing to the Messiah? In Acts 2, which I'll read in a minute, Peter gives us good reason to believe the referent is to someone beyond David. That even David himself was looking beyond to a holy one who was like him in some ways, but vastly greater in other ways. In particular, this holy one wouldn't even experience the corruption of his body. In that sense, David's hope beyond the grave ultimately relies on the victory of God's holy one over the grave. And then the third thing he, he reveals here God's faithfulness to David and God's faithfulness to the Holy One leads to life in God's presence. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, David's hope goes beyond the grave to the manifold pleasures of life in God's presence. So, what have we seen in Psalm 16? God faithfully blesses his loyal king in life and in death. And because of the terms of God's covenant with David, God is not going to forsake David even when death itself swallows him up. Uh, David's hope lies beyond the grave. And that's, that's the first step we need to take. But let's now take a second step. David serves as a type of Christ who was to come a type of Christ who was to come. That is, God made David's life kind of a prophetic pointer to the future Messiah. So the way David represents the nation, the way David relates to God as father, the way David prays and suffers and triumphs, all these aspects of David's life establish kind of a trajectory that that is anticipating another greater son of David. Let's take David defeating Goliath, for example. A story where most of us are familiar with. The whole point of that story is not bravery. Or courage. Or defeating your giants in life. It is to teach us that God rescues his covenant people... ...through the victory of his anointed king. Now that pattern in David's life sets a trajectory that eventually climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ who truly defeats our greatest enemies sin death and the devil so god delivers his covenant people through his anointed king that's what that story is about so when we read of god faithfully blessing his loyal king in life and in death you need to note the pattern here that This pattern is establishing a prophetic point or trajectory that finds fulfillment even beyond David. It has to find a fulfillment beyond David because even David himself expected a future Holy One who wouldn't see corruption. And even if you take the Holy One as David's own self-reference, which it could be, you have to admit that he's using a bit of hyperbole in the psalm. I mean, was it the case that the Lord was always before David? Was the Lord before David when he slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery? Was the Lord before David? Was he setting the Lord before him when he lied and then killed her husband? Was the Lord always before David? Is David the superior holy one? No, sometimes David will describe his own sufferings or victories in exaggerated ways. And that might very well be the case here. But in the end, this hyperbole points be, people beyond David to a king whose loyalty and sufferings and triumphs were far greater than, than David's ever were. So however you take the Holy One in verse 10, we, we have to at least agree that it ultimately points well beyond David. David. a much greater loyal king that God would reward in life and in death. In fact, there are hints that his loyalty will be so great that not even death itself will be able to hold and decay his body. Uh, Step number three, David knew God would raise up a future holy one to defeat death. David knew God would raise up a future holy one to defeat death. So here's where we're circling back now to the Davidic covenant and Peter's words in Acts 2. Uh, Last Sunday we looked at 2 Samuel 7, so we won't read it all. Um, It's the Davidic covenant. And part of of God's covenant with David was this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And what is he saying in that covenant? David, you're going to die. And I'm going to fulfill my promises to you in a future offspring. I'm going to give that future offspring a forever throne and a forever kingdom. Now now look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. If you want to go there with me. Acts chapter 2. Verse 30, and what's important to remember is that Peter has just quoted Psalm 16. He is explaining the same verse that Paul uses in Acts 13. And Peter says, in, uh, adds this in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. Do you hear that? He's talking about David. David. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Now, get what he's saying? David had this covenant oath in mind when he wrote Psalm 16:10. In fact, the title gives the key, the 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 title that David ...gives the king in Psalm 16 is really peculiar. Or should we say the title the Holy Spirit inspired David to give the king... ...in Psalm 16 is really peculiar. You, you might recall the discussion we had last Sunday on God's hesed. God's hesed. Right? This is the, the Hebrew word behind our English translation... ...steadfast love or sure promises or loving kindness... ...in some of the older translations... It conveys God's loving resolve to fulfill his obligations to his covenant, and in particular, in this context, his covenant with David. Well, the Hebrew behind the Holy One in Psalm 16 10 is Hasid. Do you hear the similarities? Hesed, Hasid. In other words, David seems to understand that God will display his covenant loyalty most supremely in the Holy One of Psalm 1610. Which means that even David's hope for victory over the grave was tied to the promise God made to raise up a forever king on a forever throne. Step four. The ultimate loyal Davidic king to defeat death and reign forever is Jesus Christ. The ultimate... Loyal, Davidic king is to defeat death and reign forever Is Jesus Christ. If we return to Acts 13, notice that Paul quotes Psalm 16, 10. So let's flip over to Acts 13, 10. Acts 13, I mean, not first 10. Acts 13, verse uh, 35 there, you will notice that... Uh, Paul is, 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 that's where he quotes Psalm 1610. And, and by the way, this is just a great example. This, this quotation of Psalm 1610 comes right after the quotation from Isaiah. You see it there. And this is a great example of how the apostles saw the Old Testament as giving one coherent message. I mean, we're dealing here with different authors, Isaiah and David. We're dealing with different genres, prophecy and Psalms. And we're dealing with gener- different generations. 300 years apart. And yet, the Holy Spirit of God inspires one coherent message about the Messiah. And so Paul links these quotations from Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16 and and at the beginning of verse 35 with the word, therefore. Therefore, God says in another psalm. We know it's God saying this because that's what he said in verse 34. But what's the connection here? Well, it becomes more obvious when you notice that the word behind holy in the Isaiah quote, you see it there, the holy and sure blessings of David, that's the same word in the Psalm 16 quote for your holy one. In other words, Paul makes the connection between God's hesed and God's Hasid explicit. God promised to bring the ...holy blessings of the Davidic covenant... ...through the Holy One... ...who wouldn't see corruption. And so the logic of Paul's argument... ...goes something like this. God spoke in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Implied in those blessings... ...is a forever king... ...on a forever throne. Therefore... ...God also spoke in this way... ...in Psalm sixteen ten: You will not let your Holy One... ...see corruption... He has to defeat death and reign forever if those promises will reach their fulfillment. Verses 36 and 37 then show why Psalm 16 could never refer merely to David. It has to refer to Jesus. He says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Corruption. In other words, death held David's body in the grave and it decayed. Conclusion? Psalm 16 couldn't be talking about him. The Holy One had to be someone else, ultimately. And it's Jesus. And the disciples knew it was Jesus because he died and three days later... Three days days later. Add that to your dictionary. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And he appeared to them bodily, with that body he went into the grave with. He showed them his hands and his side. It's me, he says, right? They saw his body. They touched it. They watched him eat fish with it. Death couldn't keep his body in the grave. Now, why? One answer is God said so. That's one answer. God said so in Psalm 16. His body wasn't going to see corruption. So it couldn't have happened. God was faithful to his word. Three days later, he rose without corruption. Another answer, in addition to that, is that while Jesus was truly human, he never shared Adam's sin. Jesus had no actual sin. He did nothing wrong and always did everything right. And Jesus had no inherent sin. He was free from sin in the entire structure of his being. It's like the angel told Mary in the Advent narrative. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy ...the Son of God. The virgin birth makes Christ unique... ...from all the others who were born in Adam. The the humanity of Christ... ...was created by the Spirit Himself... ...and all that the Spirit makes is holy and good. If Jesus' body decayed in the grave... ...it would prove that He was in fact guilty... Of sin and death, that he too was born in Adam like the rest of us. Death and all that it entails is the consequences of sin. So if he stayed in the grave, that would mean he's a sinner. But he didn't stay dead, and he couldn't stay dead because he was in fact righteous. The resurrection vindicates Jesus as the Holy One. He is the Holy One of Psalm 16, who wouldn't see corruption. He is that King who gives us the assurance beyond the grave that God will not abandon us either. So, what does this mean? Well, Paul draws a couple of conclusions in Acts 13. And I find another conclusion in Psalm 16. So let's take one final step. Step five. Jesus wins for, us, God, wins for us forgiveness from sin, freedom from condemnation, and felicity in God's presence. Let's start with forgiveness from sin. We see it in Acts 13, verse 38. He says, Let it be known to you, Therefore, brothers that through this man, and that is this man and no other man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So if Jesus is truly the Holy One, if the resurrection vindicates Jesus as being free from all sin, then we have to ask them, why did he choose to die? He didn't have to die. He chose to die. Why? He suffered and died for our sins and the penalty that was due our sins. Sin. So if we identify with Jesus by faith, then forgiveness of sins is ours in Christ. We need God to forgive us. God is holy. We have offended him by our wayward and uh, desires and attitudes towards his law. We stand guilty before the judge and the consequences is eternal death. When God the judge forgives somebody in Christ... He does more than simply pardon us. Pardoning means he frees us from punishment, and he can free us from that punishment because Jesus bore that punishment in our place. God, but forgiveness also extends to the removal of sin. Okay, God cleanses all that makes us guilty before him. All your wretched deeds, all your shameful acts, all your rebel passions, they're they're washed away by the blood of Jesus. And then there's also freedom from condemnation. That comes in verse 39. He says, And by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. That's another Old Testament quotation. It comes from Habakkuk 1.5. People sometimes quote this in a positive light, but it's actually threatening judgment. You know, you get these guys, they're like really passionate about something exciting happening in the church. God is doing a work in your day. I'm like, do not say that. You don't want that. Because if you read the context, people are rejecting God's law, they are perverting justice in the land, and Habakkuk is crying out, God, what are you going to do about these ungodly people? And he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe them out with the Chaldeans. That's the work he's doing. He's bringing swift and speedy judgment. In other words, the very condemnation, the law laid out for covenant breakers, they're about to get it. That's what, Acts, that's what the Habakkuk quote is saying. And Paul, what he's doing is playing off this judgment text to show these Jews that as long as they don't believe in Christ, they remain under God's condemnation. The law condemns them as covenant breakers. And that's all the law can do when it comes to salvation. The law cannot save. It simply points the finger and condemns. And so Paul warns them, condemnation will destroy you unless they believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, he says, you're freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So if you work your hardest to obey the law, if you try to earn God's favor by working and working and working, then you're only going to experience God's wrath. But if you trust in Christ who fulfilled God's law for you and won your righteousness and suffered your condemnation and died your death, then you'll only experience God's grace. So in Christ, forgiveness of sins comes to those who believe and freedom from the law's condemnation. But that's still not the end. The end of the forgiveness and the freedom is felicity in God's presence. And that's where I want to go back to psalm 16 where did david's hope in psalm 16 climax right here in verse 11 in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore the bible says that it was was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross despising its shame and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. As king, Jesus represents a people that he will bring with him into that joy that he pursued and won through his death and resurrection. And oh, what joys they must be at God's right hand. I was reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, you know, when he sees the Lord sitting upon a towering throne, and he says the train of his robe filled the temple. The idea being that the Lord was was so majestic in holiness that Isaiah simply stands in awe of of just just the, the hem of his garment. Right? He doesn't actually describe what he sees, he's just. Amazed by the hymn, like this thing is big and everywhere. Or as, as John walks us to the throne in Revelation, you know, he, can, he can't help but, but see every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth bowing in worship and myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angelic hosts praising Jesus, right? The, the point of their praises. is... It, Isn't that God, you know, created these creatures just to run like a broken record? Holy, 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 holy. No, no, no. The the sheer majesty of the Father's glory revealed in his son compels their endless praise. My holy, 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 holy. Like it just continues to increase and compel them to sing. And the reason John starts from so far outside God's throne and, and describes and you're, and you're thinking of all of these, you know, he kind of works in concentric circles as he comes closer and closer to the throne and he's just amazing you with all of the angelic hosts before you get to the throne because he's saying, because God's better. You, you're amazed by the angels? He's, whoa, he's way holier. And he's just, he's just, it's just glorious. The throne is wrapped in rainbow-like emerald beauty with jasper and carnelian decorating the royal majesty. Many diadems are on His crown. His eyes burn like flames of fire. His face shines like the sun in full strength. His glory is so brilliant there's no need for sun or moon to shine in His kingdom. He carries all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, honor and power, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus and He dwells in unapproachable light with springs of water coming from the throne never ceasing to give life to all the nations. All who share David's hope in the Holy One get to come into that. Get to come into those pleasures. The King of kings wins for His people these Pleasures. Sorrows abound when you chase after idols. But eternal joys abound for those who make Christ their hope. Joy on this side of eternity is often mixed with sorrow. Life right now is like a a rose with thorns. The flower smells sweet. But the blasted thorns hurt. And like when my parents arrived on Wednesday, I'm like thrilled, just can't wait to see them. I'm glad they're here, but I'm on the phone with somebody talking about their child having seizures in the hospital that are unexplained. Am I I'm happy that they're here? Or do I cry? It's mixed. Or maybe your face hurts, you know, because you laugh so hard one evening. But then it ends. People go home. The lights go out. Friends move on. Sickness prevails. People die. One day, brothers and sisters, joy will no longer be mixed with sorrow. Joy will be unmixed and full as we see God face to face. You don't get higher joys or better pleasures than those that are at God's right hand. You can't improve on these pleasures. And if you think you can improve on these pleasures, then your soul has been shriveled up by sin. And you have a far too small view of God. God is infinite in glory and beauty and holiness. He has the pleasures that last forevermore. They don't grow old. We're not going to get bored. You can't get bored and have an infinitely holy, beautiful God with finite creatures. Just every millisecond will be a further and further revelation of his beauty and wonder and worth. You cannot number the pleasures here at his right hand. They will be constant and without interruption. We will forever be satisfied in a perpetual vision of God's glory in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So what should you do? I would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and freedom from condemnation. That's what I would do. I would run to Jesus to save me and bring me into this pleasure. I would forsake the pleasures that this world is fiddling with your mind with and I would run to the ultimate pleasures that are at the throne of God through Jesus. So trust in Jesus for forgiveness and freedom... and then pursue your pleasure in God. The pursuit of God is the pursuit of pleasure. The greatest pleasure. He sent His Son to bring us pleasure in what is holy... namely Himself. So delight in Him as your refuge... Delight in Him as your ultimate good. Delight in Him as your counselor. Delight in Him as your Lord. Delight in Him as the faithful one who raised up Jesus just like He said He would. And because He raised up Jesus just like He said He would, He's going to raise up you just like He said He would. And bring you into these pleasures. And finally, when you approach death, when you approach death, I want you to preach God's covenant faithfulness to you in life. Just like David did. Preach God's covenant faithful to faithfulness to you in life. And that will give you confidence and ground your hope that God will be faithful to you even in death. He will not abandon your soul in Sheol. He will raise it from the dead. He will join your soul with your new body. Death will not have the last word over you. God will be faithful And we will see his face and we will enjoy him forever in our new bodies which have been perfected. They have perfected capacities to enjoy God rightly and fully forever. And we can start by doing that now as we come to the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing a song first. But I want you to eat this bread and drink this cup today to your eternal pleasure in God. Gary, you want to come meet us?